guys all getting ready for Christmas, getting excited, getting up all those decorations, getting everything ready. Melissa and I were getting some things ready last week. Last Saturday, we spent the day at home kind of getting the house all ready to go. And as usual, Quincy, our four-year-old daughter, is kind of racing around doing different things, making messes as we're trying to clean things up and set things up. And at one point, um, I, I think I was in the living room, and I heard this barking. We don't have a dog. And it wasn't the kind of barking that, you know, oh, it's the neighbor's dog across the street. It, w it was very, very loud and very, very high-pitched. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? So I, I made my way to the back window, and I'm, I'm looking out the window. I hear this barking. What is going on here? I come through the glass door, and I see this streak of red come right across the yard. It's my daughter, dressed up as a fire chief, running as fast as she can, and this hat, like, this fire hat comes flying off of her, and I'm thinking, is she, is she being chased by a dog? I'm going to come help her. No, nope, no dog. And she's got this little plastic fire hydrant. I meant to bring it up here, but I didn't. This little plastic fire hydrant, she comes over to the, the hose, and she starts filling this thing up with water. I'm thinking, this is a little odd. Okay, and then she runs back over to the back fence. We have this very low back fence, and she's leaning over the back fence, and I hear the barking again. What is going on here? So I walk out there, walk over to her, and she's pouring water out of this fire hydrant over the side of the fence. Quincy, what are you doing? What's going on here? Dad, Dad, you'll never believe it. When I bark, that dog looks at me. Like, no kidding! I think the whole neighborhood is looking at you right now. But what's with the water? Well, I'm gonna give him a drink. What are you thinking? Like, oh my goodness. It kind of makes sense. Kind of makes sense. You know, when you're four, you, you love stuff. You love discovering. You love imagining. You love pretending. Puppies are captivating. Candy is like gold. Toy can be your best friend, and yes, unicorns are real. But something happens as you get older. One person said, the older you get, the fewer things you really love. Maybe only one or two things. Maybe one thing. That was made really crystal clear in that movie Toy Story 2 that came out years ago. There's this, this one toy, this one special cowboy toy named Woody who realizes over the course of the movie that his owner, Andy, the love that was once there between them is fading as Andy gets older and older and older. Love tends to fade. It tends to, to flicker and sometimes even burn out, doesn't it? And maybe it doesn't have to do so much with the, the age that we are, but maybe it has to do a little bit more with the realization that the things that we're loving, that they don't really have the value to us that they once had. And this happens with, with all sorts of things, doesn't it? Things, things get old, they wear out, they break down. Sometimes moths eat your favorite things. <laughs> the games that you like to play lose their appeal accomplishments, those certificates, they're so important when they're handed to you, and then they hang on the wall and they gather dust, forgotten. 
And it happens with relationships too, doesn't it? After a while, they lose their flair, and, and, and we realize people aren't really what we had built them up to be in, the, in our minds. And the people that were so dreamy at one point, not so dreamy anymore. I think my wife can attest to that. It happens with God too, doesn't it? Some of you have children who have walked away from the Lord, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Others, you feel it inside yourself. An affection that once got you out of bed, and once you got, got you into bed early Saturday night, so you could get out of bed early Sunday morning and meet with God's people and hear God's word, and there was an excitement and enthusiasm that you realized there's, there's life here and I want it. That can tend to go away. And other things become more important. Other things are demanding our attention now. Your relationship with God can move from being something very special, very invaluable, this, this affection that you have to something that is much more pragmatic. You go to church because it's the right thing to do. And you try to keep God happy in a sense. You'd never say that, but it's kind of how it plays out. Try to keep up appearances so that it seems to everyone else things are okay. And you do everything you can to keep those illicit desires, those secret desires and temptations that are buried deep inside, keep those out of sight. It happened to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. God says, I know your works. I know your toil, your patient endurance. And um, several other good things are listed off there. And then in verse 4, he says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. What do you do when love is lost? Or, or it's just flickering and, and fading. It's not quite as intense, not burning quite as bright. It's not quite as pure as it was before. Nothing brings that sense of, the same sense of fulfillment anymore. Life seems overrun with discouragement. You look around and you see nothing but irrationality. You see pain, you see confusion, and people all around you just seem to be running in every direction possible, searching for something, finding it, experiencing it, and yet still empty. What do you do when love is lost? The answer is very, very simple. And if we don't remember anything else, let's remember this this morning. When love starts to flicker, starts to fade, when love, maybe even that seems like it's been extinguished, you return to the source. You remember the source. That's what 1 John 4.19 tells us. We loved, we love because he first loved us. In other words, the source of any love that we might have is God's love. It's like this mountain glacier that, that flows streams of crystal clear water. His love is the source of any love that we might have. And if that's true, if God's love is the source of our love, if it has the power to impact us in such a profound way and create love in us, then let's take a few minutes 
and dwell on that love this morning. Figure out what makes that love so special? Why is it so powerful? If water down the stream gets muddy or it's contaminated, it's undrinkable, you go upstream. So let's go upstream together this morning. That's what we're going to do. We're going to look at God's love. And one of the first things we find as we look at God's love is this mysterious element to it. God's love is mysterious, isn't it? It, it, it's poured out on the unlikeliest of recipients. And by human standards, it really shouldn't even exist. It's easy to love someone who loves you, right? I love my wife. I love my daughter. They're beautiful inside and out. They're fun to be around. They care for the things that I care about. They care about me. They love me. And so it's easy for me to love them. But... There are other people in my life, you know, that just aren't so lovable. <laughs> they seem rather selfish, rather inconsiderate, rather rude. Actually, you know these people too, don't you? And don't point to anybody. <laughs> we all have those kind of people. They're a little bit harder to love. And then there are these other people that are just, the very thought of loving them is just almost unthinkable. It's, it's so difficult. They hate the things that I love. They're diametrically opposed to the things that I am, am striving to accomplish. And given the chance, they would drag my name through the mud and they would try to push me out of the way. Sometimes it's hard to love. We love because he first loved us. Have you ever wondered why God decided to create us in the first place? This is something that plagued me in high school. I just, I couldn't figure it out. If God knows everything, and he's all-powerful, and he's going to create humanity, and he knows what humanity is going to do, and he knows, knows the, what, what's going to happen to his son, and what he's going to do, why does he do all of this? If he knew the evil that we would harbor deep inside, the selfishness, the anger, the bitterness we would hold towards other people, this insatiable desire for things that we should not desire. Why go, why go to the trouble of making us at all? And even beyond that, in, in terms of relative size, you've seen those YouTube uh, videos where it, it shows like a park or maybe a puppy or something like that, and it starts zooming out, and then you realize, okay, you're in the park, now here's the community, now, whoa, now we go really high up, now we've got the whole country here, and now we've got the world, and now we're zooming out, and planets are flying by, and we realize, oh, there's our solar system, and we're going further and further, and now I'm seeing a bunch of different solar systems. Oh, now it's like just the sand. It's like the sandbox of solar systems, and you, and you start to realize, I am so small. I am so small. If I'm that small, how can I matter? I'll confess something to you today. Um, I'm not a big fan of ants. I see one crawling around. I don't think about that ant at all. I have them crawling in my house or getting on my food. I don't give a second thought. Taking my thumb and go, squash, you're done. How dare you come in my house? I'm taking care of you. Tell your friends. Oh, you're dead. Oh, you saw that, right? All right, you go tell your friends. I don't give a second thought to wiping them all out. And if you look at the size relationship between ants and me, and me and God, it's infinitely different. 
it's, it, God is infinitely bigger than me. He's infinitely more significant than me. So why should God care about me at all? It's a mystery. David wondered the same thing when he wrote Psalm 8. He said, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moons and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. And then again in Psalm 144, he says, O Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like the passing shadow. It's like, it's like life is here, and it puffs, and then it's just, it dissipates, it's gone. Not only are we small, but our lives are so temporary, like this puff of smoke. Why do we matter to God? It's a mystery. It's a mystery that can only be explained in who he is. Only be explained in who he is. You see, any value that we have, it doesn't come from us. And what I mean is, we can't take any credit for it. It's not because we're so superior, or that we have, we've made ourselves valuable, or we've been honing our skills, and now we're finally people that God wants, or it's that we've earned enough credentials, or we're chalking down hundreds and hundreds of good deeds. In fact, the Bible actually describes us as kind of the opposite of good. Isaiah 64, we've all become like one who's unclean. All our righteous deeds, they're like this polluted garment, it says. Like this garment that is so polluted, you wouldn't even take it and put it in the wash. You'd just take it outside and you'd throw it in the trash, or maybe in some countries you'd burn it. <laughs> That's what you're like. That's what your good deeds are like. The reality is our value has so much more to do with God than it has to do with us. D.A. Carson uh, wrote this. He's speaking for God. God says this. He says, morally speaking, you are the people of the halitosis. That's bad breath. The bulbous nose. Oh, he's great. The greasy hair, the disjointed knees, the abominable personality. Your sins have made you disgustingly ugly. But I love you anyway. Not because you're attractive, but because it's in my nature to love. You matter to God, but that's because of God. It's not because of you. God loves us because it's in his nature. It's the core of who he is. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. And when we say that God is love, we're not talking about some junior high kind of mushy, touchy-feely kind of crazy love. We're talking about a love we're not talking about a love that, that sees something and wants it and desires it and says, I must have it and I'm going to take it to better myself. God's love is the kind of love that sees someone in need and wants to give. It's in God's character to give of himself to benefit others. And this is something both familiar and foreign to us. And I know that's a contradiction. Let me, let me explain here. See, being made in the image of God, we have, we have the faint echoes of a whisper. <laughs> the faint echoes of a, of a whisper, this tiny little presence inside of us that wants to give to others. 
We'll, we'll, see, we'll see that happen in a movie or hear a story on the news or see a friend do it to someone else or see a community outreach happen and it, something resonates inside and we, know, we say, ah, that's good. And at the same time, there's this powerful force at work urging us to look out for number one. Paul says in Romans 5, 7, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. He's saying that, that giving of ourselves is something that's not completely foreign to us. There have been occasions when people have given their lives for good people or for the good of people in general. But God's love goes so far beyond that. It puts our love to shame. It gives of itself to the very people that war against him. Paul goes on in Romans 5, 8. But God, he shows his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Imagine giving your life for those who have done horrific things. You can think of some examples of people like that, right? Even the past week or so, two weeks, San Bernardino. You can think of what happened at Sandy Hook. Actually, I mean, we, could, the, the, we, we would run out of paper very quickly, or at least room on one sheet of paper with all of the infinite incidents of shootings that have happened in the past couple years. And that's just in our country. You go outside of our borders and you see atrocities all over the place. Imagine giving yourself for one of them. God's love is mysterious in that it's not just poured out on good people. In fact, the very notion that anyone is good is, is just not true. According to Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned away. Together they become worthless. No one does good, no, not one. So no matter how with it or together or warm or friendly a person or sterilized even a person's life may be, the Bible says apart from God, they cannot be truly good. When we compare ourselves with others, we think we're good. I'm not as bad as that guy over there. But when we compare ourselves with what is truly good and who is truly good, we just realize I'm not good at all. Paul said in Ephesians 2, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, or by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When we hear it suggested that someone has a connection with the Islamic State, we cringe, don't we? Cringe. We think danger. We think mortal enemies of the human race. We think evil. And there's something right about those thoughts. But Ephesians 2, Paul calls those who are walking apart from God, he, he basically calls them the walking dead. John, John Eddy, a great Scottish theologian from the 1800s, he, he said of Ephesians 2, it's a case of death walking. See, Paul's saying that without God, you are spiritually dead. 
spiritually dead. People apart from God, they're like these, these, these zombies that are, that are walking around. They have the appearance of life. They, they think they're alive. They go through the motions of life, but they don't really have it. And they don't even realize that they don't have it. And look who Paul says that we're following here. He says, we're following the course of this world. We're in line with everyone else operating in a way that's contrary to God's design. We may not be following the Islamic State, but Paul says you're following the prince of the power of the air. So in other words, you're following the dark Lord himself, the one who's behind and in full support of every horrific atrocity that has ever happened on this earth. So easy to step back and point fingers and say, look at the, I don't, those evil people over there. I don't understand those people. What are they thinking? But if we read Ephesians 2, we've got to be pointing right back at ourselves. That's pretty bleak. It's pretty dark. And I think that if any of us were able to step outside of our own existence and stand in judgment over ourselves in light of what we really are, we would relentlessly oppose every appeal. We'd ident identify and eliminate every possible loophole, and we'd demand the swiftest possible implementation of the harshest possible punishment. And yet that's where this mysterious this glorious love crashes in. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. John writes in 1 John 4, 9, he says, in this the love of God was made manifest to us. It was, it was made real to us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. That kind of love is a mystery. We love because he first loved us with this mysterious love, a love that was completely undeserved. Not only is God's love mysterious, not only is it undeserved, but it came at an extremely high price. His love is mysterious, but it's also costly, isn't it? Christmas is expensive. According to estimates by the National Retail Federation, the average American will spend, this is on average, $700 on holiday gifts and goodies this year. Some of you guys are thinking, man, if only, <laughs> if only $700, if only I could get away with $700. It's expensive. It's so expensive. Every year I would look at the budget, I'm like, how, how do we do this? This doesn't make sense. But as, as expensive as Christmas is, no one's spending even comes close to the price of the first Christmas. Philippians 2.6 tells us that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Talk about downsizing. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This wasn't God saying, oh, you have a problem over there? I'll send my son over. He'll help you out. This wasn't God saying, oh, you need some help with the lawn? My son will come cut your grass. This was God sending his son to die. 
Jesus wasn't born in the lap of luxury, but in a dark, dingy, filthy stable. We know that. Isaiah 53 tells us his life was far from easy. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Have you been dealt a rough hand? Jesus can relate. The big difference is that, that as people who have rebelled against God, when we go through difficult things in life, we deserve it. Jesus, on the other hand, the spotless Lamb of God, the one in whom there was no fault, the one who willingly obeyed the will of the Father and took on human flesh, the one whose life serves as this perfect example of how life in obedience to God should be lived. Isaiah 53, 9 says, He had no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus suffered purely because of the sins of others. He was, he was the victim then all victims, wasn't he? And in obedience to God, he went to the cross. Isaiah tells us it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Here is love extracted from the theoretical and squeezed out and its sweetness made available to all. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. John says in verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the, the satisfaction, the payment for our sins. See, the supreme demonstration of God's mysterious love was when love came down, suffered, and died so that your sins and my sins might be paid in full by the most costly sacrifice ever made. And for those who have placed their trust in him, anyone, even the most disgusting, vile wretch that's ever walked the face of this planet, they're washed clean. They're declared not guilty of the wrongs they've committed, and they're made friends with God. Romans 8 declares, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They can't be condemned, you see, because their sin was already condemned when Jesus paid for it with his life on the cross. Those who don't know Christ, their judgment is coming in the future someday. But those who do, not, but those who do know him have placed their trust in him. Their judgment is in the past because Christ was judged for them. John says, because of this, 1 John 4, 17, we may have confidence for the day of judgment. God's love is mysterious. It's costly. But still even more incredible is that it's so strong. His love is strong. Sally Lloyd-Jones, this lady is amazing. She wrote, she's the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible, and if you have children, you have to have this book. 
If there's one book that I want to hold on to for my daughter, it is this book. And she says this. This is like her, her catchphrase. She describes God's love as a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. A never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I don't think that can be said better. God's love is strong. It's strong in that it leveled the opposition. Charles Spurgeon writes this, The love of God to us, what a force it is! Who can ever estimate its power? The love of God to men was so strong that when death and hell strove against it, they were driven away like chaff before the wind. All our sins stood like this mighty mountain, barring our way to God, but His love leveled every hill and made plain a plain path by which we might approach his mercy seat the love of god to his people is omnipotent there's no force in nature that can for a single moment be compared with it that is so good isn't it it leveled the opposition spurgeon says our sin stood in the way like this huge mountain impassable there's no way across this thing god's love comes in and just wipes it out his love is so strong And it's also strong in the fact that nothing can separate us from it, right? Nothing can separate us from it. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. He goes on, no, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm sure neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, Anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing that can separate us from His love. Not even the sins we commit tomorrow. We didn't earn God's love by being good enough before. What makes us think that we can keep it by being perfect now. When we find ourselves tripping and failing, falling after trusting Christ, after being washed clean by his shed blood, that should hurl us back to the foot of this cross. Sorrowfully confessing, weeping even over our sin. We don't want this stuff. Christ's blood isn't this get out of jail free card. And we just wave, ah, God, I just We mourn over our sin. We want it out. We want to mortify it. We want to kill it. We want to get rid of it. And so we're sorrowful, and yet at the same time, we're joyfully celebrating this mysterious, costly, and strong love. We're just, Lord, you are so good. And in that miraculous way, God takes our sin even and uses it as, as some type of mysterious grace in our life that because of what Christ did, even our sin propels us even further towards him. God, I need, I, I need you so much even more. I thought it was okay. I thought it was strong. When we fail, we need to turn back and hold on to that strong love. Finally, one last thing. Come full circle here. His love is is mysterious, costly, strong, and contagious. 
In fact, this is the big point of 1 John. It's, it's that if you have not caught it, if, you, if, if you've not shown signs of developing love in your own heart, then you don't have God's love. You, you just don't have it. We love because He first loved us. His love produces in us a love for Him. It produces in us a love for Him. We can't take any credit for loving God. It's, it's just a pure response to this mysterious, costly, strong love that He's poured out on us. We can't take credit for it. Neither can you love Him back enough. Have you ever thought about that? Again, what uh, Spurgeon writes is incredible here. If we loved Him so much that men called us fanatics... If our hearts were all taken up with him, if we lived for nothing else but to serve him, if we had not a breath or a pulse uh, that was not devoted to him, if we laid down our lives for him, yes, if 10,000 lives, uh, if we had 10,000 lives and laid them all down for him, Spurgeon writes that, that the love that he showed for us when we were his enemies, he says this, perfectly justifies for doing all that and 10,000 times more if it were possible. You can't love God enough. Nor can you make yourself love God more. Have you tried that? Have you tried to make yourself love God more? You ever found yourself, your, your love for God just wanting less, it's just less than it should be. If his love is what produces in us love for him, then the key to loving him more, it's not in trying to love him more as if I'm going to buckle down, okay, today I'm going to love God. Here we go. That's not how it's done. It's in thinking about. It's in marveling. It's in celebrating his great love. That's how it happens. It's about going back to the source. It's about going upstream. And that's one of the reasons we gather here on Sunday mornings. This isn't just some fun activity that we do. This isn't just some, some club that we're in. Hey, how's it going? Oh, yeah, you're still in. Okay, cool. This is... This is so vitally important to our existence as believers as we come together and we celebrate the love of God and as we do that and we see each other doing it, singing and praising God and going through hard times and still trusting Him and having good things, blessings dropped into our lap and celebrating the goodness of God, our love for Him just explodes. This is so important Sunday mornings to be together with the body of Christ. Do you find your love for God is fading? Devote yourself to being among the people of God and devote yourself to meditating on His great love for you. His love is what produces in us love for Him. It also does something else. His love for us is what produces in us a love for others. We love because he first loved us. That's what John is trying to get us to realize here. The evidence or fruit of us trusting in God's mysterious, costly, strong love is that it produces in us 
love for others. It's contagious. He writes in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. As we come to know, trust, rely on God's love, we automatically start developing this love for others. It's a love that's not dependent on whether or not they deserve it, whether or not they're lovable. We love because God loved them enough to create them. Not only that, God loved them enough to send His Son to die for them, to wash them, just like He washed me. There was a movie that came out early this year about a pastor in South Korea who's dedicated himself to rescuing abandoned babies and for caring for children with with disformities, disfigured, disabled children. He's got a laborious task. It's difficult. It's costly. It's heartbreaking. In fact, if you see the film, make sure you have tissue. At the end of the film, Pastor Lee says, I never thought that I would have to adopt any of them, any of these children. I didn't think about it, nor plan for it. The reason I decided to become their father was God adopted me. This is the kind of love that is produced by God's mysterious, costly, strong, contagious love. We love because he first loved us. Do you feel like your love for God and your love for others is fading? Or maybe you're here this morning and you don't know that you have ever known that you have experienced, trusted in God's real, powerful love. You've sought after it in so many different ways, so many different forms, but you keep winding up empty, deflated, discouraged. You need to go upstream. We need to go to the source, turn from all efforts to find love in other places, and look to the one whose love is mysterious, completely undeserved, whose love is costly. Son of God paid for your sin with his life on the cross. Look to the one whose love is strong. It leveled the opposition. It will never let you go and whose love is contagious as it fills you with this love for God and love for other people that you could not have had before. This message titled, When Love is Lost, was given by Pastor Jared Burke at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. This message is the third of four in our Advent series titled, When Love Came Down. For more information and resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.ccclh.org.